and welcome to Newsnight. I am Ladi Akiri Duluale. Thanks for joining us. My guest on the program thinks Nigeria's security challenges are the result of many years of neglect of symptoms and that a lack of capacity by the police, which is supposed to be in charge of internal security, means that the Nigerian military is stretched in many areas, but is nevertheless trying its best. Newsnight talks to the former chief of army staff and immediate past minister of the interior, Lieutenant General Abdurrahman Dumbazal. General Dumbazal, thank you for your time. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ladi. Let me begin with uh, the, of course, quite naturally, the thing everyone is talking about in the country today, the state of security or a lack thereof of security. What is your general impression of uh, the country's state of security at this time? before we come to the specifics? Well, uh, generally every country has its own challenges uh, in terms of as it relates to security. And this is uh, universal. By that, I mean it's uh, all over the world. But of course, uh, every nation too uh, has its own concerns. Uh, when it comes to security. And certainly, just like uh, President Muhammad Buhari expressed his feelings several times, and uh, many other personalities have done so, and of course, uh, the issue of insecurity is of concern to us because it's, it has its own implications uh, economically, socially, and politically. Let me uh, now come to some of the specifics. What do you think was the background to these challenges? What led us to this? Because as you pointed out, every country has had uh, or has security challenges of varying levels. But uh, over the last couple of years, ours seems to have spiked. Uh, so I'm interested, as someone who was Minister of Interior, and then, uh, of course, before that, you were Chief of Army Staff, what do you think was the background to all of this? I think uh, uh, it's, uh, it involves many factors. And uh, first, uh, issue of uh, crime and criminality is part of human nature. Uh, so every country experiences that. And this is why, in the first place, we have laws to govern society. And even God himself, who created us in, it, in, in his infinite mercy, uh, sent uh, prophets, and along that side he sent books, uh, whether it's a Christian, the Bible, in, time, in the case of the Muslims, Quran, and many other uh, faiths, in order to guide us, to guide our behavior. Um, like I said, there are so many factors involved. Some of I'll those be interested in some of those factors, General. Please, uh, please elaborate with, uh, on some of those factors, please. Issue. Uh, some of those factors have to do with uh, socioeconomic issues. Some of those have to do with governance. Uh, some of those have to do with the environment itself, the impact of uh, certain things happening within the environment. Uh, so, like I said, there are multi-factors. And I give you instances, for instance, uh, 
the issue of our environment. Today we are talking about climate change, how it has impacted on the environment, uh, leading to uh, land degradation or environmental degradation, whereby uh, it has uh, resulted in forced immigration uh, of uh, farmers and herders themselves moving from uh, areas that have been degraded as a result of climate change to areas where they can uh, have access to land and water in order to either farm or herd their cattle. But in due so, because of the effect of what climate change has done, uh, it has affected uh, land and water resources which are becoming scarce and smaller in size. Uh, in that, that case, you have conflicts over its use or their use or ownership. So this is one very good example. And also in terms of uh, socioeconomic uh, uh, matters, we have issues of poverty, unemployment, corruption also has a very serious impact uh, uh, in the environment. So, so these are some of the specific uh, issues, uh, factors rather, that I think uh, do contribute uh, to some of the insecurity situations we have in the country. And also I want to mention the fact that uh, globalization also has an impact. Uh, the world is becoming smaller and uh, things are done real time just as we are talking now while you are in Lagos, I'm here. So it gives a lot of opportunities for people with bad intentions to also uh, take advantage of that, coupled with the fact that there is, uh, uh, there is te technology has so much improved. The other thing that has to do with uh, socioeconomic factors is population. Uh, if you are aware of the fact that uh, our population in the 60s after independence was just about 50 million. Today we are talking of a country of over 200 million. So that itself uh, is a factor. Population is not an issue as long as uh, that the population uh, as is used as human capital to develop. Uh, so so the, the, the resources are scarce while the population uh, has grown exponentially. So, so these are factors that do contribute to uh, the insecurity we are facing today. Let us, uh, let's, let's, let's expand the uh, discussion to include security generally, but first across the North. When all of this started, uh, at least gaining prominence, we were talking in 2009 or thereabouts, yes with Boko Haram in the Northeast. Uh, but today, General, uh, we, are, we have security challenges in the Northwest with banditry and kidnapping, and in the North Central with uh, uh, various, uh, some people would say there are inter-ethnic uh, clashes and uh, some level of uh, people trying to take over other people's lands and all of that. And then, of course, you have cattle rustling and all the other uh, um, uh, situations. Now, I know that this is something that you both as uh, Chief of Army Staff and Minister of the Interior are familiar with. Uh, I, I don't know what kind of uh, elucidation you can give us 
about how what started off as strictly an insurgency in the Northeast has become this kind of uh, existential threat, if you like, uh, for the North, first of all? Well, I, I want to correct an impression here uh, because uh, the issue of insecurity did not start uh, from the Northeast. It has always been there. Uh, if you remember at what time in our history uh, what we were dealing with in the 70s and the 80s and even 90s was the issue of armed robbery. I don't know if you remember the famous uh, Oye Nusi. I do. Particularly I do. within the Southwest and uh, uh, the, yes, Aha, Anini and Co. So those, those were the scary issues at that time, armed robbery. And within that period, if you had gone into most of our uh, prisons then, you find that most of the convicts and even those awaiting trial were uh, alleged or convicted for armed robbery. And uh, the government even had a situation whereby there was issue of public execution. And even while execution was taking place at the Babbage, somebody was robbing somebody of his car. If you remember that story very well. I do. So, I so do. Again, it's I always do. been there. The challenges of insecurity have always been there. In the, specifically uh, in, for the uh, Northeast, uh, the Northeast uh, uh, issue of insecurity uh, if you remember very well, started way back uh, with the, those young chaps who collected themselves and called themselves the Taliban, refer, with reference to what was happening in, uh, I think, in uh, Afghanistan at that time. Uh, so, and uh, these were the same group, I think, that uh, grew to become what it is today. But I want to say that uh, this issue has even gone beyond, like you rightly pointed out, beyond the Northeast. It has spread in many parts of Nigeria, but even beyond that, this is, has become a regional issue. Uh, in that uh, it has, it's an issue that has engulfed the whole of uh, the Lake Chad Basin region. And, uh, and uh, it has issued, it is an issue that also has connection with uh, the Sahel region as a whole. Uh, if, you remember, if you know that there is the, the issue of G5 Sahel, which are a group of countries who are ex also showing concern about uh, insurgency within the Sahel. And uh, specifically uh, in Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger now. And uh, so, so it's a regional issue uh, as a whole. And even Benin, our neighbor, is getting uh, some touch of it. So, so we, we initially people even, uh, those some of those countries, uh, 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 the child-based countries, did not show much concern uh, about it. They thought it was a Nigeria's problem. But until it came very much a reality that it was a regional problem. And uh, uh, all the countries 
led by President Mohamed Buhari in 2015, uh, you know, refocused attention on multinational joint tax force, which is now based in the Chad uh, under the command of a Nigerian officer since it has, uh, it has been established. And uh, of course, even Benin Republic, which is not a member of the uh, Lake Chad Basin Authority uh, uh, Commission, uh, is, is contributing towards that because uh, it's, it's, it's also a threat to it. And uh, I, I want to say that uh, it's a threat to the whole of West Africa. Among the insurgents groups today that are very active is ISWAP, uh, Islamic State for West African Province, which has the ambition, you know, territorial ambition to engulf the whole of West Africa. So it's a, it's, it has gone beyond uh, Northeast, beyond Northern Nigeria, beyond Nigeria itself. It's a regional issue and it's an African problem, African challenge, which I think... Uh, we have to look at it from that angle, uh, uh, I'm afraid. And uh, uh, to be fair to President Mohamed Buhari, when he came in in 2015, I think the first thing, if you can remember, was for him to pay visit to all the neighboring countries specifically because of this very challenge of insurgency. And following that, he organized a conference of heads of states of this of the, this same region, uh, LCBC, here in Abuja, whereby this issue was discussed. In addition to that, the government of Nigeria also, you know, gave lump sum amount of money for uh, this project. And uh, uh, by the way, the multinational joint tax force is uh, heavily funded, mostly. By, by Nigeria because we have more interest to protect here. Don't forget our population. Don't forget our size. Uh, don't forget uh, uh, our interest, particularly in, uh, that has to do with uh, uh, managing uh, uh, our borders and reinforcing it with security, which we have to do that uh, alongside uh, those neighbors. Uh, we have extensive land borders uh, covering uh, about 4,500 kilometers or thereabout. Uh, so so, so it's, a, it's, it's a concern to us that uh, we must be able to uh, protect. It's a major challenge uh, our, the population of over 200 million. So, so I, 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 by and large, I, I believe that uh, uh, this is the issue. Uh, even even here in Nigeria, as at that time, you know, there were all kinds of uh, narratives being uh, uh, sponsored here and there, and the people were not even taking the issue of Boko Haram that serious. Uh, they think, you know, part of the problem we have is uh, ownership of uh, the problem, national ownership, because even at that, that time, uh, there are people who looked at uh, this issue as a not its problem. Uh, there are those who are looked at it as a northern problem. But today, it has become a regional problem, not even Nigeria's problem. So, so uh, there, there, there is a night, very wide network uh, of uh, insurgents that are connected 
uh, with ISIS and so on and so forth. So, so these are issues that uh, we need to look deeply and ensure that uh, we nail it on the board because issue of insurgency, which is uh, combined with uh, 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 religious extremism, uh, which is uh, combined with uh, terrorism, whereby people, young uh, chaps, uh, children were sponsored and uh, commit uh, suicide bombing, killing uh, people uh, in various places. Uh, so, so we, we don't even talk about uh, 2009. We go take it way back, uh, even during Obasanjo's time, if you remember very well. Uh, there were there was uh, some uh, attacks in Kano, and uh, followed by that, there was a popular. Uh, uh, Islamic cleric, uh, Sheikh Jafar Adam, who was murdered while uh, leading prayers in the mosque in Kano. Uh, so so this, this group had, young chaps had already established cells all over. Uh, so it wasn't uh, just even, even as at that time, uh, you know, confined to the Northeast. Uh, don't forget the fact that 2011, uh, the bombing of uh, the UN bombing and other places in Yanyan and so on around Abuja. So, so this, this, these are issues we've been dealing with. And uh, I don't want us to continue to see it as a Northeast problem or as a Northern problem or a problem. It's a regional problem. It's uh, an African problem. Uh, and uh, we, we need to really uh, wake up and be able to deal with it from that angle. You, you referenced the fact that, um, that, that, that the role uh, the president has played in bringing together the neighbors, and of course that brings up the role of the military, because you talked about the multinational joint task force now based in Chad. Uh, that brings us to the role of the Nigerian military in yes. tackling these challenges. Uh, as one of the Nigerian military's uh, veterans yourself, uh, how would you say the military has performed, given uh, the, the fact that, you know, many of these challenges are still with us, uh, and uh, sometimes we hear from the military itself uh, that um, there are some challenges uh, having to do, in some cases, with uh, resources, in some cases, with being stretched uh, to things. Some of the reports we have are that uh, the Nigerian uh, uh, military is in 32 states of the Federation, and some of what they are doing in those states uh, routinely should be the job of the Nigerian police, uh, but they're there. And uh, that speaks to the numbers. That also speaks to the issue of personnel uh, and all of that. And then occasionally we hear about welfare issues and equipment. So take all of this together. Uh, how has the military done um, in this war against Nigeria's uh, uh, security threats? Uh, bearing in mind all this challenges you've mentioned, uh, it's very glaring that uh, the military is doing as much as it can to deal with the situation. Um, and I also want to appreciate, uh, use this opportunity to appreciate my colleagues in the military. And uh, particularly, I want to appreciate those who gave up their lives for others to live. Uh, leaving behind them 
widows and orphans. Uh, no, no military person gets out of his house deployed to fight a battle with the intention that he wants to die. No, he wants to win the war and come back. But unfortunately, that is not the always, always the case. So, so we need to give the military, you know, standing ovation for what they have been doing as far as fighting insurgency is concerned. It's a big challenge. Americans just got out of Afghanistan after 20 years. Um, they've been fighting uh, war against terrorism since when? Uh, almost uh, more than three decades now. So, so with all the advancement, all the technology, all the intelligence they have, uh, they are still fighting it. Uh, fighting non-state actors, ours the case. Unlike the Americans, theirs is not homegrown. They go outside the country to challenge the threat uh, against them. But ours is homegrown. And uh, to challenge non-state actors who are Nigerian citizens mostly, uh, who live within the communities, uh, is not an easy task for anybody. Secondly, you've mentioned the fact that uh, the military is overstretched. Yes, the military is overstretched. Uh, what is the strength, the total strength of Army, Navy, Air Force? Just a little under 200,000. And not only do they, are they occupied to, to, to they're not, they engaged to fight uh, uh, this insurgency. They also are engaged to uh, issues of uh, routine policing duties within the country. And I think uh, we need to look at our police as an institution and strengthen it in order to be able to handle those tasks, which is its primary responsibility, so that the military can concentrate on defending the sovereignty and territorial integrity of this country. And in doing that too, they have to be very conscious of uh, issues of human rights, because uh, those are issues other people also are waiting for them to make any mistake. So, so to go into fighting, you know, uh, 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 people who are involved in terrorism or insurgencies, who are living within the country, who are Nigerians, who are uh, within the communities, who are irregular, non-state actors, is extremely difficult thing to do. And I, and I, I believe that they're doing as much as they can, uh, bearing in mind uh, the circumstances. And of course, when you're talking of uh, uh, equipment, uh, weapons and equipment. Uh, you know, the, when, when the president said that uh, he needed $1 billion to buy equipment, uh, the people were making all kinds of noise. Uh, when you look at uh, the challenges, the security challenges in the country, uh, $1 million, you know, it, it isn't much uh, for... Uh, to cover their needs 
their needs, requirements, uh, to be able to carry out this task. Uh, their constru primary constitutional responsibilities and, and other challenges, insecurity challenges we have. So, so and I, I believe that uh, we must be able to appreciate the military. Of course, uh, there are areas that uh, one can say they can do better. Uh, uh, but of course, uh, if you look at it generally, I believe that uh, they are doing as much as they can to uh, carry out the task the Commander-in-Chief has given them. Uh, so this, this is my view on this, as far as the military is concerned. Yes, there are issues that uh, have to do with uh, administrative problems. Uh, this is not unique to the military. It's a general issue uh, which, uh, uh, when you look at you know, the whole sectors uh, in the country, we have challenges of uh, accountability and transparency and rule of law in the system. Uh, unless we look, and these are key ingredients in any democracy, and, uh, we, 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 and these challenges are not unique to the military. Unless we are able to uh, focus on these challenges, make sure that whatever we do, the process is transparent, the process is accountable, and the process follows rule of law and, of course, human rights. So if we do that, uh, I, I think uh, it will not give uh, much leverage for anybody to be able to take advantage of the system. One of the things that you have mentioned, General, and uh, which yeah. you yourself have been, have had yeah. cause to be a bit critical about, has been interagency cooperation, particularly in, uh, in intelligence gathering and the usage of that intelligence um, uh, in the aftermath of its gathering. Uh, I remember that when you were speaking uh, to one of the programs on, uh, on this station, uh, in the immediate aftermath of the attack, the terrorist attack on the Kujé Correctional Facility, uh, you made a couple of statements uh, that people said, yes, exactly, this is the nub of the problem, uh, not just with reference to Kujé, but with a number of the other things that had happened even before Kujé. Kujé was just the most recent at the time. Before that, people had gone to the Oweri Correctional Facility. They had gone to Joss. They had gone to uh, Akure. They had gone to several other places, amongst other targets. And in many of those instances, they had said, look, there was intelligence available that this thing was going to happen or there was a probability that it was going to happen. But it seemed as if that intelligence didn't get to the right people, or if it got to those right people, they didn't get the right orders. So again, I want to ask you in the context of what you've just said about how things could be done better, what is it that we are doing, uh, that we need to do better in this regard uh, with reference to this intelligence gathering and interagency collaboration amongst the security forces? Yes, uh, thank you, Lady, for this. Um, yes, I mentioned that, uh, you see, uh, in this business of uh, security, two things are very important. One, the security forces must have the capacity not only to monitor what is happening, 
but they must have the capacity to respond to an incident. And that capacity must be very quick, sharp, and uh, to be able to, you know, be useful to their, their action. Uh, if it is not quick and sharp, uh, then it, 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 it only would it only lead to escalation. And that, this is why I made a comment. Uh, for instance, the train attack. For instance, the Kuje prisons. And there are so many other instances whereby uh, these violent criminals will go into operation, spend a couple of hours in that operation, finish that operation, and disappear. So, so this is why I said there is need for us to look at the way we respond to emergencies. Uh, the way, you know, the security agencies collaborate, cooperate uh, among themselves. Because this is not a one-man's business. This is a must be based on collective efforts. And uh, if one only a single agency alone would not be able to deal with such a situation, particularly this kind of uh, insecurity we are in, we are, we are facing today. So this is why it's important that uh, the security agencies work together. They must share information or share intelligence. Uh, their equipment must be interoperable. Uh, interoperability of their equipment is, is a must. They must be able to speak to themselves using their equipment. They must be able to, um, you know, assess the situation simultaneously so that they know who takes what action at, at what time. So, so it's very, very, very important. This is key for them, interagency, cooperation, coordination, and collaboration. I call them uh, three Cs. So this, this, this is very, very important uh, for them to do that. Uh, and uh, if, if, we are not able, if they are not able to achieve that, then it becomes a problem. Given that scenario that you've just painted, and I, I, I want you to look at it uh, as a military man now, uh, 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 and from the security perspective, uh, so many places have, uh, have done two things in the last uh, couple of months. The first is that there have been some, the creation of some regional uh, uh, or uh, security outfits. For example, in the Northeast, you have what is called today the civilian JTF. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the southwest, you have uh, uh, what is called Amotekon. And then secondly, you have some, uh, some people, including uh, security experts, saying maybe the, the availability of uh, 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 defense weaponry should be slightly enlarged to include uh, paramilitary organizations and even some civilian ones. What do you make of this, General Damazel? Well, the, the, that has its own advantages and disadvantages, but understandably well, uh, it's more like a self-help. Communities come together to form vigilante in order to be able to cover the gaps that are left by uh, uh, officially recognized security forces. And uh, that, that is what is happening. Um, 
I say it has its advantages and desires. I give you example, Zamfara, for instance. Zamfara case has led to a kind of war between uh, the, the Fulani hiders group in the forest and the vigilante groups coming from the communities. And uh, uh, the Fulani groups accused the vigilante of going into their communities, killing their people, uh, rustling their cows, raping their women, and so on and so forth. I don't know how far that is true. But they use that as, an, as their excuse of going to the communities where they identify vigilantes or any member of the vigilantes. They use that to go into that community to carry out attacks or banditry attacks as we they are known today, in order as a way of seeking revenge. So, so I think uh, that kind of thing should need should be looked into. Uh, if, if for instance, like the Southwest, that the formation of Amoteku, uh, in order to be able to uh, cover certain gaps, uh, the civilian in the first place have a role to play, whether they are formed as vigilante or not. They should be able to provide information to security agencies. Uh, they should be able to, uh, whatever they see happening that is wrong, be able to report it. Uh, but what we have today, too, on the other side of it, uh, the flip side of it, is that uh, we also have civilians who assist these violent criminals to do what they are doing, to survive on it. Some of them go to the extent of supplying them food in the forest. Uh, some of them supply them medicines in the forest. Some of them supply them uh, weapons and all kinds of things. That is done. But this is not, should not be the case. This is a problem that is a threat to everyone. Uh, sometimes, too, you find that uh, some of the people do it out of fear. Because uh, sometimes when, when a community feels that uh, it, doesn't get, it doesn't get the protection it requires uh, from the security forces, then they will rather you know, give in to the demands of uh, these criminals. Uh, to the extent that they will go even and threaten, they collect taxes from them, and uh, they make them. I saw uh, a, a, a picture. I have not verified that of some even using them, the captives, the victims, using them to farm to to for farm labor on their own farms, and whatever products they get belongs to the these criminals. So these are some of the issues. Now, on the issue of uh, uh, weapons to para our paramilitary uh, institutions uh, have weapons. Immigration, they have weapons. They are, you know, the, the act establishing them has allowed them to carry weapons. Uh, likewise, the correctional service, 
uh, they carry weapons. Uh, uh, but the, the other issue is that uh, uh, they need more training on that. Uh, I'm afraid to say that uh, for several years, or this was my experience as Minister of Interior, which I made effort to correct. For several years, I, 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 I met a situation whereby uh, the training, you know, there was weakness in training personnel in the paramilitary organizations. And this is why we gave uh, a lot of uh, attention to the training institutions to make sure that they are functioning. And also made it mandatory that uh, before you move uh, from one uh, rank to another, you know, you are required. And I just brought my military experience into that. Uh, you are required to go on certain courses, certain training. You don't just get promoted like that without going for those courses, being tested on those courses, and getting certified with good grades, which you now come to compete at the board with others before you are promoted. Uh, before then, people just got promoted without uh, attending those courses. Uh, so I've, I've seen that in the files. But uh, we've corrected that at least while I was there. And I believe uh, my successor uh, uh, has continued with that. So, so this, these are some of the issues, uh, and I think. But you cannot also uh, allow everybody to carry weapons. Uh, even the Americans are still grappling with the issue of gun control. Uh, because you find situations whereby People go into schools and start spreading uh, children uh, with uh, killing them all over the place. Or go into uh, uh, supermarket and start killing people, and so on and so forth. So America is still grappling with the issue of gun control. So to say that everybody should be allowed to carry weapons, uh, I do not think, you know, uh, We've gotten to that, particularly uh, issue of assault weapons. Uh, these are issues that I think uh, we should be very, very, very careful about that. But uh, vigilante has always been there. It's not new. Uh, we've had communities uh, organizing vigilante uh, since I, you know, I, I grew up. I knew that. Uh, so it's not a new thing, but of course, uh, the Southwest, for instance, has led as a as a region to uh, look at it from uh, a single window uh, to create a motorcum that uh, will be able to assist. Uh, this is how I see it because they do not have constitutional mandate, so they are doing that to assist. Uh, the law enforcement agencies. I've seen situations whereby when they make arrests, they hand over to uh, law enforcement agencies. You, you alluded to it when you spoke earlier about uh, uh, cooperation between countries. And I want to, again, use your experience as Interior Minister uh, and, uh, of course, as Chief of Army Staff to talk about Nigeria's border control. Uh, because a number of these criminals, you mentioned ISWAP earlier in the interview, 
a number of them cross borders uh, from Chad into Nigeria, from Niger into Nigeria. And so many people go back to 2011 when uh, the late uh, Colonel Gaddafi was killed in Libya and he, the armory of Libya was broken into and a lot of the weapons uh, were found them, uh, themselves with uh, uh, non-state actors. And that a lot of these weapons have come into Nigeria through our borders. Um, and that some of those who are perpetrating this uh, uh, insecurity uh, challenges or giving us these security problems are in fact not Nigerians. Uh, there may be Nigerians, as you pointed out, but that there are some of them who are not Nigerians. Uh, what, what, what can you say about that uh, in terms of uh, the strength of our national borders uh, in being able to curtail uh, you know, incursions such as this uh, at this point? Yes, uh, you are quite right. Um, our border security management has some serious challenges. Uh, one I mentioned earlier that uh, we have uh, a little over 4,500 kilometer borders, land borders. And of course we have uh, borders uh, uh, by the sea. Um, so so this, this is a challenge. Then of course there is absolutely no way we can uh, physically man those borders. Within those borders, I believe, as at the, the time I was in office, there are about 40, 84 officially recognized crossing areas. But there are over 1,000 illegal routes that uh, people use. That is one, one issue. The second issue is that uh, the, the closeness between countries uh, bordering us. There is a border I visited whereby it's only a road that divided uh, the community in Niger and the community in Nigeria. I visited the uh, Benin Republic in, upon their invitation on issues of this border. And uh, I met the minister, my counterpart, the minister of uh, interior in Benin Republic then. I think uh, somebody, Mr. Akonde, apparently is a Yoruba man. And uh, he told me that uh, uh, they have a very close cultural affinity uh, with uh, the Yoruba in one of the states. As a matter of fact, uh, none of the traditional rulers will uh, remain on the seat without visiting a particular shrine in Benin Republic. I, I can't remember the complete story, but it was something like that. Uh, if you look at uh, Chad, you have uh, Niger, we have uh, Fulani and Kanuri speaking people, too, just like Benin, uh, Yoruba speaking people. Uh, you look at uh, Cameroon, northern Cameroon, uh, we have uh, Fulani speaking people and Hausa speaking people. 
go to southern Cameroon, uh, you cannot differentiate between people in, for instance, uh, Aqua Ibom and Cross River with those of uh, southwest Cameroon, even in terms of name. You have the sharing uh, similar names. So there is that strong cultural affinity. That is the second issue, aside the expanse nature of the border itself. Uh, so even if you just look at those two, you know that we have these very challenges. So in order to deal with these challenges, we must work together with uh, uh, our neighbors. And interestingly, too, you find that uh, there's some of, some of, some of uh, maybe because of population or whatever, or because of, uh, but you find that uh, uh, some of those neighbors are even more organized uh, in terms of respect to rules, to laws, when you get in. You leave, you leave Nigeria, for instance, get into Niger. Immediately you get there, you see the way they organize themselves. Uh, they are not as rich as us. They are not as exposed as, as, as us. Uh, so, so there is need for us to come together to be able to work on that. Some of them, all, of, all our neighbors also depend on us for survival to a very large extent. And, uh, and uh, I was uh, looking at uh, uh, sometimes back when they said, the federal government has offered uh, to buy some vehicles, I think, is it for Niger or, or Chad? I think for Niger. Uh, the people were making, uh, that is soft power. We also get uh, some of these aids from other countries. Uh, so they don't make noise about it, but they know why they give these aids. And we also know why we give such aids. Uh, so so this, these are some of the issues. The Americans have two bases in Niger. They have a, a, a Department of Defense base and uh, they have a CIA base. All these bases are bases that they use for, uh, to carry out, to, you know, to protect their interests. Uh, so we cannot eat also neglect that fact that uh, we need to, to uh, move very closely with the Americans and uh, to, to, to be able to leverage on what they do there. Of course, they are there for their interest, but also we have our interest, and they are their interests that are mutual. Also, let's not forget the influence of France in that region and EU in that region. Uh, France has been conducting Operation Bakane in Mali for several years, even though recently they said they were withdrawing some of the troops. Uh, so, but France is a great influence to all our neighbors who are Francophone. We cannot distance ourselves from France because we have some interests to protect. And those interests too, and France too has interests to protect in Nigeria. So we should be able to uh, have a bilateral relationship with these countries based on mutual interest. General Dambazao, uh, thank you so much 
uh, for, uh, for this uh, uh, interview opportunity and uh, appointment. Uh, we're very grateful uh, for the privilege uh, to have you as our guest. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That's our program today. We would, of course, like to hear from you on the conversation. Our social media handles are right there on your screen. You can also listen to this and previous episodes of the program via our podcast. Please visit our website, channelstv.com, to get started. I am Ladi Akiri Duluale. Goodbye. Thank you.